Friends, today we are starting into a two-week series, preaching, teaching series here at Covenant. And um, in these two weeks, we're going to look at three verses of Scripture total. We're going to look at three verses today, and then we're going to look at the same three verses of Scripture next week. But I don't want the brevity of this series or of the number of verses of Scripture we're looking at to make you think this might not be as important as some of the other things that we investigate and talk about. In fact, uh, Dr. Robert Waldinger, who just published a book, uh, he's a professor at Harvard and has uh, the current director of a very important study, says that what we're going to talk about in these two weeks might be one of the most important things that you'll ever think about in your life. In fact, what we're going to be talking about in these two weeks might do more, according to his research, to impact both your happiness and even the longevity of your life than any other subject we can talk about. Now, Dr. Waldinger, as the, the director of a study at Harvard called the um, Harvard Study of Adult Development, is a study that's very unique. I've alluded to it a couple of times before in the past. It's a study that is currently 85 years old. And it is a study that for now thousands of women and men, spanning now three generations going forward, they were asking the question, what makes people live happy, fulfilled, long lives? Can we find anything that is a common link of people who have happiness, who are flourishing in their life, who have longevity to their life? And what they found was yes. It's funny to me in our society, the things we get obsessed with and the things that we just sort of pass by is almost seeming unimportant. I have heard more this week about what Rihanna is going to wear tonight at halftime of the Super Bowl than about this study, and it's just completely backwards. We should all be going, it's like, this is a study where they're like, hey, there's very clear things that can make you live a happy and longer life. And we're like, yeah, but what's Rihanna going to be doing? It's like, no, like, we should all be focused on this and really wondering what is it that makes life worth living? And he says that one of the most striking things in 85 years of studying thousands of people, he said over and over and over again, there is one clear thing. That more than any other factor affects both the happiness, the quality of your life, as well as the potential for longevity and health. This is a quote from the study. He writes this, what do the healthiest and happiest people have in common? One factor clearly stands out above everything else, good relationships. It's not necessarily about being married, since people can be lonely in a marriage and thrive by living alone. Whether you're married or not, it's important to have friends and loved ones you can talk with and rely on. This determines more about health and happiness than anything else in life, and it's not even close. There's not even a close silver medalist to happiness and longevity than good friendships, relationships, deep community and connections. So while science through this study is getting really clear about that, what's also interesting and scientists are telling us something else, sociologists are telling us something else, is that at the exact same time we're becoming clear about the importance of deep connected relationships, we are also as a society getting worse at living it out. 
We are around more people than any time in human history. We are more connected through technology. We're also more urbanized, meaning we see more faces than any point in human history. And yet we are at historically high levels of loneliness, of being surrounded by people and connected by people through emails and texts and social media, but not feeling like we're known that there is an enormous gap between what is becoming clear that we need for happiness in life and more and more and more of us don't have it. And I worry in our world, and I, if you've been here, I'm not a doomsday kind of person. I actually feel very hopeful about where we're all headed. I think we're setting our children and our grandchildren up to struggle even more with it than us. And it's critically important. That's what this series is about. This series is about how we live in the kind of community that both our faith and science says are centrally important in all of our existence. And one of the things we're going to see is how clearly the teachings of the Bible line up with what Harvard study is saying we all need. Turns out the Bible knows what it's talking about. It's been saying for a long time that it's not just about community, but there's particular aspects of the kind of friendships, the kind of community that we all need to have to flourish. And we're going to talk about how we build that, all of us, in our lives right now. Dr. Waldinger would say, there's probably not much that's more important for us to spend some time on than this central question. Three verses of the Bible are going to guide us, both this week and next week. It comes from the book of Job, which I know most of you were just reading this morning for fun. The book of Job is one of those we just kind of go to for hopeful news. Um, but in this case, there's something really important that's here. Job is a book we often associate with suffering, and there is suffering. And it's actually important for you to know before this passage that we're about to read, Job's suffering is very acute. He has already at this point lost people in his family whom he loves. He is in mourning. He is broken. He has been afflicted with a skin disease at this point. He has sores all over his body. And he is a hurting individual. And it is into this context that our scripture passage comes from Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come up upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we gather for worship today, that we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, friends, we're looking at this in these two weeks about the kind of design that we are meant to have for the ties that bind us together, for the friendships, for the relationships that we are meant to have with one another. Now, if you've studied the book of Job before, you know that these three friends are kind of a mixed bag in the overall book. And we need to acknowledge that. Because after this passage that we just read, after they sit with Job for seven days and nights in his morning, they start talking. And, and as often happens, that causes the problems. 
Because when they start talking, they start trying to explain to Job why he's suffering, why God's doing this, uh, why Job should think about his own life in different ways. And none of their advice is actually good advice. And so I want to acknowledge that from the beginning. If you're like, I don't know that we want to kind of totally emulate these three. I get that. And there's real parts to it. But before we get to the fact of just jumping to these three people who give bad advice, I want us to marvel at what takes place in these three verses. When they hear about his suffering, they drop everything in their lives to go be with him. These are three individuals who have to travel. They have likely families. They have jobs. They have things they're trying to provide. They have struggles. Their families probably have difficulty. They've got a lot of pressure and responsibilities. And yet when they hear about Job's suffering, they are the three friends that without being invited, they just know they're supposed to be there. And they drop everything in their lives to go and sit with their friend. And when they show up and see the suffering that he is undergoing, they sit with him for seven days and nights. They don't say a word. They don't offer any advice. They don't try to fix it. They just sit with him in his suffering. And they mourn together. It's what Brene Brown writes about as empathy. Not coming in going, let me give you the three steps to getting out of this situation. But to remind Job that he is not in this by himself. That they are with him and what he is going through. Now again, what we talked about is that we're gonna see in this series how faith and science line up. And what we have in our culture is, when I say that we are living in a culture of loneliness, when we talk about this growing loneliness that, that sociologists are telling us about in our country today, it's not that we don't have people we're connected with. We have people that'll retweet what we say, they'll like a post that we put out there, uh, they might uh, be people we can be entertained with. There's people who talk about our being entertained to death together, uh, that we can like sit there and talk about and go to concerts together and have fun, and that's great, we're not anti-concerts. Uh, we can go tailgate at a football game and, and you know, complain about Steve Sarkeesian or complain about Jimbo Fisher and have all kinds of conversations about that and, 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 and have that experience. And that's a good thing to do. We can sit with our kids and talk all about their teachers in school and the assignments and their soccer club or their swimming and what they like or what they don't. We can have all of those conversations. But what Job's three friends embody is something totally different. They show up when they hear of his suffering and sit with him for seven days and nights in all of his sorrow and all of his sobbing in the rough and unfinished places of his life. And they're just with him. Do you have people in your life that you know would do that for you? Increasingly in our society, the answer to that is no. That you know who the names of the people that would drop everything to be there if they heard. And do you have people that you know without a doubt you are that sort of friend to them? The reason this is important scientifically is that the researchers in Harvard were getting into why are relationships so important? Why are relationships more than anything else determining the happiness of our life as well as the longevity of our life? It's not just that it's about relationships. Why? Why are relationships the most important thing? And they've studied that as well. 
In an interview, Dr. Waldinger uh, reflects on that, and I want to really encourage you to have Job in your head as you listen to this why. Why are relationships so important? Dr. Waldinger says this, so if you were to wait, make one decision to best ensure your own health and happiness, it should be to cultivate warm relationships. We think this is the case because relationships help us manage stress. Think about Job here. These relationships help us manage stress. Following thousands of lives over decades, we see that every life has difficulties. So the question is not, do you have challenges? The question is, how can you meet those challenges? Do you have the resources that you need to meet those challenges? And we say that the strongest resources to meet challenges is having good relationships. Really what you need is somebody in your life who you can call on. In fact, we asked our study participants, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? Some of our folks could list several people. Some of our folks couldn't list anyone, not a soul in the world. We think that everybody needs at least one person in their life who they feel is a safety net for them, who would have their back if they were really in trouble. There may be no better picture of what that looks like than Job and his three friends. For they hear about his suffering and they drop everything in their lives to come. And when they see his suffering, they sit on the ground for seven days and nights to mourn with him. This is what Dr. Waldinger is saying that we all need and increasingly we don't seem to have in our society. How about you? What we're going to be talking about this week and next week is really not just the information, but how do we start building this kind of relationships? Because I think we're becoming increasingly unfamiliar with what even these deep relationships look like. And where I want to start today, and what I want you to think about today and this week is if to live and to find, and you've got to always cultivate these kind of relationships. You don't call on these people when you need them. These relationships are built over time, long before the crisis hits. That to build these in our lives, most of us are going to sit there and go, okay, well, how do I be that kind of friend? And how do I show up? And how would I look? And what would I say? Or, but I think the place we have to start with is this. To have these kinds of relationships, it doesn't start with you being a friend to someone else. It starts with whether you're willing to let someone be a friend to you. It starts with whether you're willing to be Job. Because they see his suffering and he shows up and they show up to be a part. But let's not underestimate the importance that he lets them. That he doesn't sit there and go, no, 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 tell him I'm fine. Tell him I'm okay. Tell him I got this. Most of us in our lives do not like people coming in to our hard places, to the difficult spots in our life. Most of us find it very invasive and intrusive. Most of us don't like to be seen to let people in in that way. And in fact, in our society, not only do we not like it, we're rewarded for not doing it. At work, we're rewarded if we're people who are leaders, who uh, kind of keep things moving forward. We often have to do that in our families, with our children and our grandchildren. We have to be strong. We have to hold things together. We have to be people that come up with solutions when other people are falling apart. We have to have endurance to get through. And we celebrate those individuals who are strong enough 
And while Job doesn't go out and kind of broadcast his suffering to the entire world, he does have people that come in that are able to be let into his world. And the question is, do you have that? Or no matter what's going on, are you okay? I'm fine. I've got this. To be Job in this scenario is one of the most countercultural and it's one of the scariest things we can do. And I want to acknowledge that, to tell the truth, to let people in. There are people right now who are going like, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know what I'd say. And I get that. I want you to hear, I get that. I don't really like this either. I wish it worked differently. And in fact, like you, most of my life, I have resisted this completely because I want to be seen a certain way. And it makes me uncomfortable when people see the actual picture. In fact, the first time in my life that I can remember having people that were just friends like this to me took place uh, uh, through a na uh, names that you all have heard me use in the past, Steve and Cheryl Hayner. Steve and Cheryl Hayner were a couple that Beth and I met about 20 years ago now in Atlanta. Steve passed away not long after I moved out here to Austin. Uh, and if you were here at that time, that was, a, that was a big loss in my life. Steve and Cheryl uh, moved to Atlanta, and the way we got to know them 20 years ago was Beth and I were both in seminary, and Steve came to be a teacher and then the president of the seminary. He was a really like, important person in our world, and Cheryl was coming and enrolling as a student at the seminary. Now, the way we met is that Beth, my wife, was teaching Greek to incoming seminary students. She was very, she is very good at languages. And for three summers, she taught incoming students how to translate the New Testament. And Cheryl was one of her students. And Cheryl and Beth went to lunch one day. And Beth came home, she's like, I really connect with her and the, she's really amazing and it's really great. And they invited us to dinner. Beth and I were going to dinner with Steve and Cheryl Hayner. Now to you, that may not mean anything, but this is what you gotta know. At the time, I was working at a local church doing college ministry working with college students, which is a really hard ministry to do. And if there at the time was a Mount Rushmore of people who were leaders in college ministry, Steve Hayner was on Mount Rushmore. He had just stepped down as the president after a very successful tenure at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, one of the largest international organizations that works with college students. Tens, hundreds of thousands of students who have gone through InterVarsity, and Steve was moving to Atlanta. So you, that may not mean to, anything to you, but at the time, this was a huge deal, okay? I want you to imagine in your world, in your job, in your industry, the nationally known person in your field moves to Austin, your spouse becomes friends with their spouse, and they ask you to their home to dinner. That's what was happening to me the first time we went there. And I went in not wanting to go, God, let me tell you how you can sit with me in my suffering. It was, let me show you what a big deal I am. I'm doing college ministry in this church. It's growing. Did I mention it's growing? Did I mention it's doubled in size in the last year? Did I mention my teaching? Did I mention what? Did I mention it's growing and what's happening? And here's how I'm thinking about it. And you kind of have a little experience in college ministry. What do you think about this? And how would you approach this? And I was like kind of trying to get strategy and stuff. And, uh, and, and at the end of the dinner, thankfully, I didn't mess it up so bad that they didn't want to talk to us again. And they invited us to come back to have dinner.
And then we went back and had dinner. And on the second time, they asked us a question that no one had ever asked us before. They said, do you guys want to be in a small group with us? And as a couple. And we were like, sure. I don't know what that is, but I'm a big deal. And I'm an up-and-comer in college ministry. And I got a lot to add. And I'm sure you want my wisdom in your life. And so, like, how do we do this? And he was like, well, we're just going to kind of start having dinner and sharing life. And uh, we're not going to read a book. We're not, it's not a book study. We're, we're just going to talk about how we can pray for each other. It's like, great. I'm a big deal. College ministry is growing. Let's, like, how do we get into strategy? Now, after a few dinners, there wasn't any more strategy to talk about. And I was even tired of myself talking about how big of a deal I was in the world of college ministry. And so this one night, Beth, in my view at the time, made a mistake. Because she shared something with them that I was not prepared for. Because there were, as there are in any of our lives, rough, unfinished places. And one of the things that she shared with them was that we were in the midst of a journey through infertility. And if you have been on that journey, some of you might be on that journey, that is one that is painful, it feels isolating, you can't fix it. Weeks had turned into months, it had turned into years. And it starts wearing on you that there's something broken with you, something not right. And, and it was wearing on us individually, and it was wearing on us in our life together. And Beth shared that. And I said, did I mention that the ministry's growing? Did I mention that, like, <laughs> I, I, you know, how we do this? And, and they started praying with us week after week, month after month, and again into the years. They couldn't fix it. They couldn't solve it. But they could sit with us in the pain and name it and be with us in it. And that turned into also a great celebration when they were the first people we called when we found out that we were pregnant after years of struggle with Miriam. And they rejoiced with us. That rejoicing quickly turned as a pregnancy was really difficult and it was really scary. And, uh, and it ended very suddenly six weeks early when Miriam went into distress and there was an emergency C-section and she had to be born. But after she came, she was, she was okay, even though she was born six weeks early. And the first people that showed up to meet her were Steve and Cheryl Hainer. Steve, Cheryl, busy lives, present in the seminary, dropping everything to walk in the hospital, to hold Miriam, a child they had been praying for for a couple of years with her mom and dad in our struggle and in our pain. And as they got ready to leave and they hugged us goodbye, they gave me a package, a package that they had picked up from a children's store on the way to the hospital that were closed for a premature baby because they knew that we didn't prepare for a child to come six weeks early who was as little as Miriam. And they stopped on the way to get her clothes. And when Miriam Grace was strapped into a car seat to do our first drive home to our house from the hospital, she was not in clothes that her mom and dad had thought to buy. She was in clothes of people who had prayed for her years before she was on this earth. 
Losing Steve was one of the really hard things in my life. And I miss him because he taught me a lot about ministry. He taught me a lot about leadership. He taught me a lot about uh, situations. I wish I could call him and just ask him, what would you do here? Or how, how do I think about this here? But that's not what I most miss. What I most miss is knowing there's someone that would get on a plane at the drop of a hat to just be with you. That's what community and friendship look like. That's what we're trying to build as a church. That's why we invite you to get in small groups. That's why we invite you to consider being a part of these during Lent. That's why we invite you into Bible studies where you will be prayed for. That's why we do this, to be this kind of place. But friends, I want you to hear me now. You can sign up for a Lenten small group. You can be in a small group now. You can join a Bible study. But if you're not willing to be Job, it will mean very little. But there will come a moment when people will ask you maybe the most revolutionary thing they can ask. How can we pray for you? And you can make the decision about whether you choose loneliness, choose isolation, choose to say you're fine, choose to say you're busy, choose to say you can pray for me at work, or you can have the faith and the courage to say the truth. Not because they can fix it, but because what science is telling us is that if we don't have people to, to walk the journey with us in our pain, then we are choosing to have less joy and happiness in our life, and we're actually choosing to live less time on this earth. Because you're not meant to walk alone in what's hard. We're meant to do it in community. That's the true tragedy. The true tragedy is not that people are lonely. The true tragedy is that we choose to be. By not being willing to be Job. They showed up. When they heard about his suffering, they dropped everything in their lives. And they showed up and for seven days sat with him in his pain. But don't miss the miracle that he let them. That's the kind of church we're building. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for your leading and your guiding as to what it means to be a people in a culture of loneliness who truly journey together. Lead each of us is to the next step in cultivating those kind of friendships, that kind of community, by being willing to be Job to be honest, to let others in. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.